And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And the life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. John chapter 12. Before we get started looking at this passage, let's make sure that we're ready. We'll just open in prayer. We've already had confession in the Lord's table, so we'll just begin our study with prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study. Make them clear to us. May the Holy Spirit show us how to apply these principles in our thinking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12. At this point, we are entering into the last week of our Lord's life on the earth. Now, just an aside, there are a number of chronological issues that I'm not going to address for a while. They are quite complex, and I'm not sure how to resolve some of them. I've been wrestling with some of these issues for 20 years, and I haven't found the satisfactory answers to a number of them. So we're not going to get distracted too much with trying to figure out which day of the week each one of these events is taking place on. Maybe as we go through, we will discover some solutions to some of these problems. But we see here that six days before the Passover, Passover always occurred on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. That is not an automobile. It is spelled N-I-S-A-N, and it was the first month in the festival or feast calendar of Israel. And on the 14th day, set aside since the day of the original exodus from Egypt, the 14th day began at sunset. So six days prior to that, Prior to the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now, on this particular day, we know that several things transpired. First of all, he went to Jericho. At Jericho, he had an encounter with Zacchaeus, a tax collector. Then he travels from Jericho to Bethany. And there at the home of Simon, the leper, even though he's been healed, he's still known and known through history as Simon the leper. At their home, along with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, there's a dinner party. And it's at that dinner we saw last time that Mary 
anoints Jesus' feet. That means she got down to a position of humility. Normally you would anoint someone's head, but she anoints his feet, which shows extreme subservience and is a recognition of her submission to the authority of the Lord. She anoints his feet with pure nard, which we said um, <clears throat> the amount of nard that is used here was probably worth in today's dollars, around twenty-five or $30,000. And she anoints his feet. That means she pours out. It's a Greek word, alepho. It's not the word creo. Everybody gets confused. And you have people who immediately jump to conclusions about the word anointing, that it means something spiritual. Creo, which is the verb form of Christos, the anointed one, Mashiach in the Hebrew, is a word that has spiritual connotations. But the Greek word alepho, which is the word that's used here, was just the normal everyday practice of rubbing oil on the skin. And in a dry climate like you have in the Middle East, in Israel, this was just common everyday practice, much as uh, ladies will put cream on their face to avoid getting any lines or wrinkles and take care of their skin. And nowadays, men are beginning to do the same kind of thing. They did that in the ancient world as normal practice. So she is just rubbing this perfume on his feet, and nard was one of the spices used in embalming. And it is a recognition that, she, that Jesus is about to die. And all of the people around Jesus, it's Mary alone who realizes what is about to transpire. Judas, of course, we saw last time, complained about this waste of money. He really had his eyes on it for himself and raised an issue about that. And then we learned that uh, at that point he is about to betray Jesus, verse 4. And we will come back in about a month when we get into the 13th chapter and do a detailed look at Judas Iscariot. And then we discovered in verses 9 through 11 that the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, have decided to put Jesus to death and also they want to put to death Lazarus because he's evidence that Jesus is God, that he can uh, resuscitate people from the dead even after four days. So they want to get rid of the evidence as well. Now, the dinner party took place. Here I am getting, I've been studying this stuff all week. I can't avoid the chronology. Fourteenth day, I just want to introduce the problem. We'll deal with it later. Fourteenth day, six days earlier, would be the eighth. The tenth is going to be the day that they select the uh, Passover lamb. So if we start here, the 14th, let's just take traditional, the traditional view of chronology. If the 14th begins at 6, 6 p.m. on Friday, then you have Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, Sunday, Saturday. So you go back, you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 days earlier. So if Six days before Passover is on Saturday. That would begin at 6 p.m. You have a problem. See if anybody snaps to the problem. Jesus has traveled from Jericho to Bethany. That's more than a Sabbath day journey. That's a violation of the Sabbath. He would not have done that. Um, 
on that particular day. There's no indication in any of the stories that he was uh, anything uh, doing anything other than was was expected of him. That would place his entrance because see you have the evening is when they have the meal one through eight, and then in verse nine the great multitude of the Jews learned that he was there. So that's not on the evening of the sixth. Day That would be on the fifth day, all the multitudes come out. So 9 through 11 takes place on the day after that. And then um, the fourth is the day, the fourth day before Passover is the day that he enters Jerusalem. So we can say that for sure, that he is going to enter Jerusalem on the tenth, which will fit the typology of his enter, uh, at the same time that he's entering, they are choosing the Passover lamb in at the temple. The Passover lambs are being chosen for the sacrifice, and this is what's going to happen here when he enters Jerusalem, fulfilling that typology as the Passover lamb coming to take away the sins of the people. So that's just the background on a little bit of the chronology, and we'll have to twist everybody's mind up when we minds up when we get there a little later. Now verse twelve says, On the next day, this is now the fourth day before Passover, on the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now this is the feast of Passover. And Josephus tells us that Approximately 256,500 lambs were sacrificed on Passover in Jerusalem. Now, one Paschal lamb was sacrificed usually for a family of ten. Sometimes a family might be a little larger. You just didn't have mom and dad and the kids. You had the whole extended family would get together for Passover. And so if you base that on calculations of ten people per lamb then you've got well over two and a half million people crowding into Jerusalem for Passover. So normally Jerusalem only had a population of about 100,000 or so. So where are you going to put two hundred or two and a half million people? They're going to be camped out all over the hills outside of Jerusalem and all along the roadways. You're going to have people setting up their tents and the caravans camping out. And the picture here is that Jesus has been in Bethany and he is coming to Jerusalem. And as he approaches Jerusalem, these multitudes that are outside, that are camped out along the road then, begin to gather around, line up the road. Verse 13, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, even the king of Israel. So they began to sing praises to the Lord, chanting Psalm 118, verses 25, but they modified it a little bit by inserting the phrase, the king of Israel. That's not found in Psalm 118. Now, what's going on here? One of the most difficult doctrines, I think, for us to fully understand is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Now, the term hypostatic union comes from the Greek word hupostasis. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. And hypostasis referred to a substance or essence of something. 
And the term hypostatic union refers to the union of two essences. Undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person. So there is a complete unity here. Now that is a difficult concept to understand. And sometimes when you hear this taught, you will hear people talk about Jesus and you'll hear them say, well, Jesus did this from his deity or he did that from his humanity. Well, when Jesus did certain things, like when he calmed the sea or when he generated the water into wine, this demonstrates that he is fully God. When he demonstrated omniscience, when he forgave, it indicated that he was deity. But he doesn't, he's not a split personality. It's not that he does something from this side and something from that side. Now, these don't mix. There's no, there is no intermingling of attributes. But it comes from the one person who does it. One person calmed the sea. One person uh, changed the water into wine. One person forgave sin. He is a person that has all of the attributes of deity and all of the attributes of perfect and true humanity, so that there are certain things that he does that reveals that he is true humanity. When he grieved and wept after at, at the uh, tomb of Lazarus, that indicates his true humanity. He hungered, he thirsted, uh, things like that indicate his true humanity, but they don't just come from like one side of his person. That borders on sort of a uh, split personality kind of expression of Jesus, which is, is dangerous. Everything comes from one person. So we have to make sure we hold these things with a certain amount of tension. Jesus is eternal God, and he possesses all of the attributes of deity. He did not give any of those up. When he walked on the earth, he was still sovereign. Let's make it a little more challenging. When he was in the, the manger... In Bethlehem, he was still sovereign and he was still, according to Colossians 1.16, he was still holding the universe together. In him all things exist. He was still sovereign, he was still perfect righteousness, he was still perfect justice and love, and he was still eternal life. He was still omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, veracity and immutability when he was there as a baby. But as an infant, he was true humanity, and so he was an infant, and he had all of the characteristics of a human infant. He cried, and he uh, hungered, and he thirsted, and he had all of those things. But these were restricted. That's what the Kenosis passage in Philippians 2 indicates. He didn't give them up. They're still present. If he gave them up, that means they're not there. He wouldn't be true humanity. They are all there. He restricted their independent use. From the Father's plan. So there were times when he did utilize his divine attributes, and those were occasions like when he turned the water into wine to demonstrate his, his undiminished deity. And then there are instances of his humanity, but Jesus never sinned because of the virgin conception and virgin birth. Jesus Christ was always sinless. He never sinned. Now, we have to understand all of this, or we're going to miss a lot of what John has for us in these two episodes from verse 12 down through verse 26. Jesus is coming, we know, as the second Adam because of the 
virgin conception and virgin birth. He's born sinless, just like the first Adam. And he is going to fulfill all of the requirements that the first Adam failed to fulfill. He is also going to demonstrate, as the first Adam did not, true humility. Now, humility is comprised of authority orientation to God the Father. He is always going to be completely submissive to the Father's plan. It also involves grace orientation and is related to a completely relaxed mental attitude towards man. All of this is going to be evidenced in this this, uh, uh, section. In his humility, fulfilling the role of the second Adam, he is going to demonstrate that he fulfills the original Adamic, or excuse me, the original covenant with Adam in Eden, known as the Edenic covenant, which we will look at. So, in his genuine humility, he will recognize the power and authority of God. He will be submitted to that. He will demonstrate grace orientation, complete dependence upon God. And also, in all of this, he is going to demonstrate that the key element in true humanity is being a servant of God. Adam Adam was created to serve God in the Garden of Eden and to represent God to all of the creation. When Adam violated the prohibition in the Garden, then the image of God was violated. He quit serving God. He quit being a servant. See, man in natural humanity following Satan says that the way to power is through self-promotion and arrogance. Jesus demonstrates that the way to power and glorification is through proper relationship through God in terms of being a servant in relation to the plan and purposes of God. And that's what's going to be demonstrated in these two episodes that we find in this section of 12. And they relate to one another. It's a fascinating study. On the next day, he comes into Jerusalem and the people... They line up, there's several hundred thousand people lining the roadway from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they're all crying out this, this Old Testament passage, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, why are they using palm branches? Palm leaves were used for a victory celebration in the Jewish culture. So this is, demonstrate that this is a misguided attempt to develop a political solution to their problems. This is also indicated by the fact that they insert into the psalm the phrase, the king of Israel. This brings a political dimension to what they're doing. It is not a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. They are making the same mistakes that the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas made that we saw at the end of John chapter 11 last time. They are interpreting the data wrong. They look at the data of the resuscitation of Lazarus and they say if Jesus has power over the dead, then Jesus can defeat the armies of Rome and we're going to have a solution to our political situation. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees were somewhat concerned about this because they felt like if this went very much further then the Roman armies would crush them. But the people are looking at Jesus now as a political Messiah. They want the crown before the cross. 
The masses did not understand that from the Old Testament the crown, the cross had to come before the crown. The religious leaders never understood that the cross had to come before the crown. The masses never understood that the cross had to come before the crown. The disciples did not understand that the cross had to come before the crown. The only person that understands that the cross has to come before the crown is Mary. That's why she anointed Jesus' feet. So the people come out and they shout Psalm 118 over and over again and they really don't understand what they are doing. What we see here is a picture of emotionalism, religious hysteria, crowd psychology. This is the same kind of thing that if you were to read tales about the revivals that went on in the second, what's called the Second Great Awakening in American history, especially the frontier aspect that took place in places like Cain, uh, what is it, Caney Creek County down in Kentucky and Bourbon County and some of the other places there and, and in Tennessee where they would have these huge uh, revivals and, and 15, 20,000 people would come out from all over the frontier and they would be barking and yelping and running up trees and carrying on and everything. They, they wouldn't be speaking in tongues. There's no evidence of that that early. But they were doing all kinds of things and just mass crowd hysteria and, and religious hysteria and has nothing to do with spirituality, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, or the work of God. And this is clear from what happens in this passage and what we'll see when we examine some parallel passages that Jesus is not impressed at all with their emotionalism. In fact, his response is just the opposite. He realizes that their whole response is based on a political interpretation of the events and it is nothing more than superficial emotionalism. And never confuse emotion with anything in the spiritual life. They're out here and they're so confused they don't really understand what they're saying. As they cry this out, they cry out, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is based on the Hebrew, Hifiel imperative of a verb that looks like this. Y-S-H-A. Now, in the uh, form it took for a name, it looked like this. Yeshua, or Joshua, in the Old Testament. The verb form, the root form, means to save or to deliver. In the Hifiel imperative, it is a request. You have the Hifiel imperative plus the word na, which is N-A-H, which indicates a request or almost a demand. Please, save, now, please. That's what Hosanna means. So they're crying out to the Lord to save them. And they don't understand what they're saying. They're looking at salvation or deliverance in political terms and not in redemptive terms in relationship to sin. Now, what's the background? What has happened? John tells us first what they did on the road into Jerusalem and then he has a flashback and tells us how, what led up to this. Verse 14, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. And then there's a quote from Zechariah 9.9. 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, this entire episode is designed to show that the primary characteristic of the ideal man the Messiah, the second Adam, the true king, is humility. The virtue that is emphasized throughout this is the humility that characterizes 
the ideal man, the second Adam, that without true and genuine humility and authority orientation to God, there is no glory in life. We have to be oriented to the purposes and the plan of God. So hold your place in John 12, and we're going to take a little side trip through the Old Testament. Go all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis. If we're going to say that this demonstrates the ideal man, then we have to understand what that means. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we see the creation of Adam. On the sixth day of creation, then God said, let us... Incidentally, God is Elohim, and the plural of the pronoun indicates that that's not a plural of majesty. I think in the last 30 years, more and more Hebrew scholars have been trying to say, well, that's not really the Trinity, that's just a plural of majesty. But you have to say that it's much more than a plural of majesty because you have a plural pronoun. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So you have these two words, image and likeness. And what this tells us is that man is a reflection in finite form of God. Man is created by God to be his reflection. If you take the infinite, eternal God and all of his attributes and everything that he is, and you take this and squeeze infinity down to a finite representation, that's what Adam was designed to be. He is a finite reflection of God towards the creation. So we see, first of all, that man is created in the image and likeness of God. So in his soul, and I think that this is a, it deals with the soul and the immaterial part more than the physical part. I don't want to get into that. I think there may be some application physically, but it is so secondary, it's not even something that should confuse us. Um, not that God would be look like us physically. I don't want to say that, but there is something about the way God created man. He could have made man look like anything. Think of man's overactive imagination in all the Star Wars movies and, and all Star Trek, all the science fiction, all kinds of creatures. Obviously, God's aware of all of those. God could have made us look like anything, but God chose to make man look a certain way because in God's omniscience, He knew that He was going to incarnate himself in a particular kind of body that had to be the most ideal physical form to represent who and what he is. And that is why the physical form of man is not just, oh, well, let's give him two legs and two arms and two eyes and and two ears and this. It's not happenstance. God designed the human body because it would be the most perfect reflection of the internal part. But the main emphasis on image and likeness is on the immaterial part. And how do you know that? You know that because when, the, when God is, Adam is created in the image and likeness of God, after he sins, that image is not destroyed, but it is marred. It is distorted by sin. And then his child, his first son, is in the image of Adam. And the next, when you get into the New Testament, you study image. We are to be created into the, restored into the image of Christ. We're building the character of Christ in us, and that's immaterial, that's not material. So that there is this, this restoration of imageness, and the New Testament has to do with the character and qualities of Christ and Christ's likeness. So it has to do with that immaterial part of man is designed, and it's designed to fulfill a function. 
And that function is to be the representative of God over creation. Man was set over the creation to represent God and to rule the creation. That's the next phrase. God says, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing. So we see that there is a direct relationship between man being created with a soul functions, a soul functioning a certain way to rule the creation. He is placed over creation. Man is not part of the rest of creation. He is absolutely distinct from the rest of creation, which shows that you don't have an amoeba to man sort of development at all, and you can't try to make that fit into the uh, creation story of Genesis at all. Man is set over all the creation, and he is to do what? He is given a mandate in verse 28. He is to rule in verse 26, and this is further explained in verse 28. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So the first thing is he is to to have sexual relations and multiply. This was there from the beginning, had that capacity, although I think that God uh, sovereignly restricted that until after they had a chance to pass or fail the test. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If they couldn't procreate before the fall, then the command becomes meaningless. Because God also mandated the animal kingdom to be fruitful and multiply uh, on the on the end of the uh, uh, fifth day, and so if it's if it's not supposed to go into effect until after the fall, then it would be the same thing for the animals, and it renders it just a meaningless statement. So God mandates it, but in His sovereignty, He overrode its fulfillment until after the test was complete. Be fruitful and multiply, number one. Secondly, fill the earth, number two. And three, subdue it. So they are to have dominion over the earth and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we don't have time to go through a detailed study. We will in a few months. But, but right now, I just want to make the point that when after the flood of Noah, God reiterates and makes a covenant with Noah that entails the way life will be after the flood. And it's a restatement of these exact commands. So we know that because that's a covenant, this is a covenant. The second thing we observe is that when God restates the covenant with Noah, He says, I will put fear into animals. Animals will now fear man, and there will be a relationship of antagonism between the animal kingdom and humanity. But there's no antagonism here in verse 28. That's where it changes because of sin. Originally, there was a state of harmony between man and the animal kingdom, and man was to rule and subdue the animal kingdom. Now, this is further explained if you turn the page in the next chapter in 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man... Chapter 2 is merely an explanation of the details of what happens on the sixth day of creation. Modern liberals want to come along and say, oh, you have two different accounts of creation, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, if that's true, then poor Jesus and poor poor Paul, because they didn't know that. When they interpreted Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they would quote from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in the same passage and take one verse from one and one verse from the other and put them together, showing that they treated both as complementary accounts of creation and not contradictory accounts. And Genesis 2 is simply typical Hebrew style. You give the overall view in 
in, in one statement, and then you come back and fill in the details afterwards. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden for a purpose. You have a purpose clause in the Hebrew to cultivate and keep the garden. So man is given responsibility to, to as part of his mandate to govern, to, I mean, to uh, rule and subdue the earth. He was put in the garden to cultivate and keep it. Now there's a prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in verses 16 and 17. And then he, verse 18, he's going to give man a helper. The help, helper, the wife, the woman, is designed to help the man in fulfillment of the dominion mandate. And then in verse 19 we read, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Now, we blow through this pretty quick and he started naming all the animals. He's categorizing, classifying all the animals. But what this indicates is that man had a fantastic ability, mental capacity, prior to the fall. He is, Adam was like a Leonardo da Vinci, an Einstein, uh, all rolled up into one. There was nothing that he could not do. His, he had an incredible mental capacity, incredible physical capacity. If we were to meet Adam, we would think that he was like God. I mean, he was incredible. We are just a pale reflection of what Adam was prior to the fall. He had incredible abilities. And, and the fact that he was able to do this either presupposes the skill of writing and recording what he was doing so that he could keep track of what he was class, how he was classifying, categorizing all of these different kinds. Now, at this stage, all he has is kinds. He doesn't have all the different uh, species that we have today. A species is really a sub branch of a kind. A kind is, a, is somewhere between genus and family, I think. And he just has that to deal with. They haven't broken down to all the various uh, subcategories. So you would just have a dog. You wouldn't have German shepherds and collies and Shih Tzus and all the other uh, subcategories. So you just have the basic kind, and he's categorizing, classifying those. And I don't think there's any, any necessity for saying that, that, um, that he did it all on that day, but he began on that day, and he got enough accomplished to realize that they all had, uh, there were two of every kind, but there was no uh, comparable uh, match for himself, that he was alone, and that prepared him for the necessity of a wife. So, here he is. You see the role of the first Adam is to rule over nature. Now, turn from there to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. We have to put together the Scriptures in terms of an overall background and framework so that we can understand the dynamics of what's going on in the Gospels. Psalm 8, look at verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? The son of man that thou dost care for him. Yet thou, notice that term, son of man, here. Here it just emphasizes humanity, but it's taking into account here not humanity as fallen, but humanity as intended. So Psalm Three is looking. I mean, Psalm eight is looking at ideal humanity, Adam before the fall, Jesus as the second Adam, and the Son of Man, that thou dost care for him. Yet thou hast made him, mankind, a little lower than God, 
and dost crown him with glory and majesty that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Why was mankind created? To rule over creation, to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. So when Jesus comes in, what has happened here, if you compare the... uh, Accounts and the synoptics, which give a lot more detail. He leaves Bethany. Here is the ridge line for the Mount of Olives. And here we have Jerusalem here. Over here is uh, Bethany. And then there's just a small collection of houses. It's called Bethpage, which is the house of figs. And the roadway goes along the ridge line like this and then winds in to Jerusalem. And all along the way, the people are lined up. When Jesus comes to Bethpage, he sends two of his disciples and said, Okay, there is going to be a donkey with a foal here that has never been ridden. And they're going to be tied up. And you go and bring me the foal that has the unbroken foal, the colt of the donkey, and bring that to me to ride in. So they did that. And Jesus said, Now, if somebody questions you, tell them the Lord sent you. So you're not just rustling the donkey you're not thieving so uh, they do that and they bring the donkey to Jesus and they just throw the cloaks which is a typical mid-eastern pattern they throw the cloaks over the donkey and Jesus rides this this unbroken foal in why is he doing that that's what we just said he is demonstrating that he is fulfilling his position as the second Adam this isn't the fact that well he's God of course he can sit on the the uh, unbroken donkey no he is the second Adam. He is exercising his prerogative as per the original dominion mandate to subdue the earth. He is showing that he is the second Adam and that he is the ideal man and thus has the right to rule Israel. That's how all of this fits together. So he is demonstrating two things. First of all, two types of animals were used to for a a transportation in the Jewish world. A horse is a sign of a wealthy person as well as uh, used in warfare. The donkey was the conveyance of the poor. It is a very humble means of transportation, was not used in warfare, and was a sign of peace. So when Jesus rides the donkey in, he is indicating a couple of different things. He is indicating humility. True and genuine humility. He is not coming as the kings of the Gentiles do, lording it over you. He is not coming asserting His power and His rights to rule over mankind. He is coming in humility and and submission to the authority and plan of God. Secondly, here He is indicating that he is fulfilling the divine mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28, and fulfilling the role of the ideal man in Psalm chapter 8. So all of this speaks of his humility. Humility is the primary virtue required by genuine man, 
to rule. The path to glory is through being humble. That's we were here the first hour, we saw that in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by being obedient and going to the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to his right hand. The path to glory is through the cross and through humility and obedience. Another reason for this was the fulfillment of prophecy, but the, the prophecy wasn't given simply for the sake of prophecy, but to indicate these aspects. In Zechariah 9.9, you should still be in Psalm 8. On our way back to John, we'll stop at Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah is the second to last book in the New Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is a messianic prophecy related to the coming of the king to Israel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, and it means absolute righteous, and endowed with salvation. Humble, and mounted on a donkey. See, the emphasis is on his humility, his character. Humility and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what is the result? You see that riding along on the donkey is about comparable to, to maybe, um, what, what, what is it, riding around in a Ford Escort as opposed to uh, driving a, a BMW. You know, you've just got a very humble uh, means of transportation and gets the job done, but it does not, uh, is not a sign of power or wealth. So Jesus comes in on a donkey. Now, what is the purpose of this? The purpose of this is the elimination of the hostile forces. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nation. So he is coming as the prince of peace. And of course, Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of war until I come again. And he does not end warfare in human history until the second coming. Because he was rejected at the first coming, we go through an age that is characterized by trends, and one of those is warfare, also poverty, as we saw last time. Now let's go back to our passage in John 12, now that we have an Old Testament framework for understanding some of the things that are going on here. Jesus is coming in on an unbroken foal of a donkey in order to demonstrate his humility and that he is presenting himself as the Prince of Peace. The people are claiming that he is the King of Israel and they are wanting him to defeat the armies of Rome militarily. So they are completely rejecting his offer of peace and they are substituting for it their desire for warfare. Nobody understood what was going on as exemplified in verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So if we are going to understand the significance of these events, we have to learn a little more than just what went on here. So turn back one gospel to Luke 19 and let's read Luke's account of what goes on 
on his at the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem. Luke 19, verse 29. Luke 19, 29. And it came about when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you in which as you enter you'll find a colt tied, tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them, indicating his, his omniscience and his deity. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments on the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent, notice how he writes it almost as, he's, as if he's seeing it before his eyes. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Now, Luke is going to point out the fact that among this multitude of several hundred thousand people, there are some disciples who are honestly worshiping the Lord. They have accepted Him as Messiah and they are honestly saying this. John is going to focus on the masses that don't, that are operating just on pure crowd hysteria and emotionalism. But Jesus recognizes the fact that the crowd's not accepting him. This is not an acceptance of him as Messiah. And this is why we need to carefully look at the Luke passage. The people are crying out, Blessed is the name, who, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, the, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Fantastic passage. Because it tells us that his presence is so powerful and, and, and demands such a response. that and Obviously it does honestly from his disciples that even if they were uh, muted, the stones would have to cry out. And look at verse 41. This is where I've been headed. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now, if the crowd, by singing Psalm 118, was accepting... then Jesus would not be weeping over Jerusalem in verse 41. That's the point we have to pay attention to. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus said, You have rejected me and rejected me. He has come to Jerusalem now about five times that we've seen in the Gospel of John, and each time he has been rejected. So now that they have set their course in terms of negative volition, God is going to harden them into that negative volition. He is not over... They've already made their decision. Now He's setting it in place for the final act of the drama. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes... For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side. In other words, the die is cast. It's determined now by your rejection of me. So Jesus recognizes that the crowd hysteria is nothing more than emotionalism. So let's look at a couple of points related to emotions. First of all, 
Emotions were created by God as part of the human soul and therefore are legitimate. But their role is to be the appreciator or responder in the soul. The soul is made up of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. The mentality is the cognitive part of the soul. This is where thinking takes place. The emotion is the responder. The emotions respond to what's going on inside the thinking of the soul. What, is, what, the, soul, what the mentality of the soul believes to be true, the emotion responds to. But when you reverse this, so that the emotion is the initiator and the mentality starts responding, that's when you get into emotionalism. Now, emotion takes over and is in the driver's seat rather than thinking and reason. Point number two. Emotions are designed to respond to what is in the intellect of the soul. You see something. You have a circumstance. Something takes place in life, but it immediately goes in through your eyes, in through your ears, in through your experience, into your brain, and you interpret it. At that point, you believe certain things to be true relative to that experience, and your emotions respond. Not to what's out there, but to how it's been interpreted in your cognition. Point three. When emotions begin to dictate our attitude, when emotions become the criterion for life, become the basis for making decisions, or the criteria are, are identified as spirituality, that's when you have emotionalism. Emotionalism is when emotion becomes the deciding factor, how it makes you feel, how you respond. Instead of thinking and reasoning and making objective decisions, now your emphasis is on human uh, emotion. Point four, emotionalism bases decisions on subjective impressions and feelings, not on thought and analysis from objectivity and based on Bible doctrine. Point five, Christianity rejects emotionalism as a basis for spirituality. God rejects emotionalism. Jesus rejected emotionalism when he entered into Jerusalem on, and, was, and presented himself as the king. He rejects the emotionalism of the masses. Christianity rejects emotionalism as the basis for spirituality. Our emotions do not impress God. God does not lead us through our emotions. And emotions are not to be confused or identified as the leading of the Holy Spirit. So the multitude comes in. I mean, Jesus comes in. The multitude is having this religious experience out there because they think that he's going to uh, destroy the Roman army. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he sees all of this superficial emotional acceptance as true rejection. And so he is saddened over what goes on. Now, verse, back to John 12, verse 17. So the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they had heard that he had performed the sign. So they are out for all of the excitement. It doesn't say the multitude came because they accepted him as Messiah. They come because their curiosity has been stimulated. They have inquiring minds and they have heard about the latest National Enquirer article. And so they want to uh, have their emotions titillated a little bit and they want to see what this is, thing is all about with Jesus. And the Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. 
So they are seeing a self-fulfilled prophecy. This is what they were concerned about when they met at the end of chapter 11, that the whole world would go after Jesus if he kept doing these things. Now, verse 20, we come to a very interesting passage. And even though we're running late, we, we can't divorce what happens in these next verses from what just happened. There were certain Greeks among those who were going up to the worship at the feast. This is the only time that these... Gentiles are mentioned in all the Gospels. This is a phenomenal thing. John, remember John the Apostle is writing at the close of the church age. It's about 90 A.D. He's been reflecting on these events all of his life. There is no more nation Israel. They were wiped out by the Romans in 70 A.D. There's no more temple. He's reflecting upon all this. None of the other Gospel writers make any mention of these Gentiles. In fact, they go from the entrance into Jerusalem directly to Jesus cleansing the temple. He cleansed the temple twice. John mentions the first one at the beginning of his, of his ministry, back in John 2. And the other synoptic writers mentioned uh, the second cleansing only, and they mention it right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But John doesn't mention that. So when he thinks about the temple, he thinks, well, the temple's gone now. The destruction of the temple was a reminder, a statement by God, that the old dispensation of Israel is gone. God no longer inhabits a temple geographically in Jerusalem. He now is inhabiting the temple of every believer's body in the church age. And so the the destruction of the temple is a reminder of the dispensational shift that God has moved His plan and program from Israel to the church. It has gone from being a Jewish-oriented ministry to a Gentile-oriented ministry. And John thinks back and he says, something really unusual happened that day. Not only did Jesus clean out the temple, but right after he cleaned out the temple, there were these Greek guys that came up. Now, there's three categories of people according to a Jew. There's the Jew who is under the law. There is the proselyte who is the Gentile who's been circumcised and he is placed himself under the law, and he's gone through ceremonial washing. And then there's the Greek who doesn't want to be circumcised or go through the washing, but he's still a monotheist and he's still basically a believer in God. And these Greeks have some orientation, and they have come to the feast showing that they certainly understand some basic doctrine and are positive to the Lord, but they want to meet Jesus. And so they come to Philip. And they ask Philip, and, and Philip, uh, John notes, is from Bethsaida, which had a large Gentile population, so maybe Philip was just a little more open to Gentiles than the, than the others. And they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip doesn't know what to do about this, because remember, Jesus has not talked to Gentiles. He won't talk to Gentiles. When he sent the 70, I said, sent him out to the house of Israel. His ministry at the first advent was to Israel. So Philip doesn't know what to do, so he goes to Andrew. Andrew doesn't know what to do either, so they tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Notice, Jesus doesn't talk to the Greeks. Jesus gives an answer to Philip and Andrew for them to deliver to the Greeks. And here he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you think back on it, there have been three different occasions when Jesus has mentioned his hour. In John 2, right at when, the, when his mother came to ask him to change the water into wine or to solve the, the uh, wine problem, he said, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. In John 30, he said that they were seeking to seize him, but no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So for the first time, these Gentiles say, I want to talk to Jesus, and Jesus says, my hour has come. What's happening here? The Jews have just rejected him, but the Gentiles are open to him. Jesus' ministry, remember he said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. He has to go to the cross in order to bring in those sheep, in order to expand the ministry, and he is recognizing this at this point. And now he says that, that his time has come, and it has been stimulated by the presence of the Greeks, because now they're ready. The Jews have rejected him, and this is a signal to him that the cross is imminent. Now, this has a profound effect, and, and we're going to come back and look at a lot of more details in here next time. But look at verse 27. This is one of the very fascinating details here. As a result of hearing this question, this inquiry by the Jews, Jesus goes through soul torment. Now, we think, well, you know, if you're walking with the Lord, you're just calm, peace that passes all understanding. It's not what this indicates. This is the perfect God-man, and he has real soul anxiety. Not, not worry, but there is a, a troubling. He's stirred up. I mean, he recognizes that his time has come, and the bottom line is that as the perfect God-man, he's going to be tainted with sin. That's the trouble. That's why he sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why he prays to the Father that this cup be taken from me is because he knows the pain that he is going to face when, he become, when the sin of the world is imputed to him. And so his soul is troubled as a result of this. So this, for John, just the fact that these Greeks came to him is a powerful statement. It's a transition point in Jesus' ministry. And the point that Jesus makes in verses 24 through 26 is not a statement, as most people will take it, of salvation. He's not talking in Johannine terminology of believing in Christ. Those belief is never mentioned here. Jesus is talking instead, and if you compare this with other passages in the synoptics, this passage talks about the value of humility and the character quality of humility and servanthood for having a valued ministry in time and in eternity. It comes back to being qualified for the inheritance to rule and reign with Christ. We are not going to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom on the basis of human viewpoint character qualities for leadership in this age. It is something different. That's why Jesus says in verse 24, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, this is true humility. It is not self-absorption or self-promotion. It remains by itself alone. But if it dies, that is the absence of of self-absorption. If it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If you're focused on your priorities, your agenda, and doing things your way, then you are going to sacrifice your your blessings in heaven and in eternity. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's recognizing that this is what is true about him as the ideal man. Notice he calls himself the Son of Man. He is focusing on the essential attribute of humanity in order to fulfill all that was expected of man all the way back in the garden. He who loves his life loses it. Adam loved his life and lost it. 
He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. This is talking about the quality of life in heaven because we've developed that capacity based upon character qualities and the issue is developing the character of humility and serving God. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me and where I am there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But we'll come up and tie that together. But I want you to see that this whole episode, both episodes from the triumphal entry to the episode with the Greeks focuses on Jesus' identity as the Son of Man, the ideal man, exemplifying the the kind of integrity, the character qualities necessary to rule and reign. And this is what is required of us if we're going to rule and reign with Christ in eternity. Not for eternal life, that's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but for the quality and the position in heaven and our eternal inheritance with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have such a phenomenal revelation that you have given us so much information And Father, help us to assimilate this into our thinking. That the issue for us in the spiritual life is not merely salvation that we know that we'll go to heaven, but it is a character transformation to prepare us for our role in heaven throughout eternity, to fulfill the destiny that each of us has as, as humanity, that is reversing the impact of the curse on our the fact that we have the image of God in us, being restored into the image of Christ, demonstrating these character qualities of humility and service. Our Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make certain of their eternal destiny. All that you have to do is accept the free gift of Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture says, and you will be saved. It's not an issue of moral reformation. It's not an issue of changing your attitude. It's just an issue of putting your faith and hope, your trust in Christ alone for salvation. Father, remind us of the things that we have studied this morning and challenge us with them. In Jesus' name, amen.